and hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and I want to start the program, and I will also end the program by reminding you that we have a very, very special um, event coming up here on the Nachum Siegel Network on Monday, March 2nd. That is a week from now, for most of you listening to this, if you're listening to it uh, as it's first being broadcast on Monday, on Monday, March 2nd. We will be doing a live four-hour broadcast of Israeli election night uh, at beginning at 3 p.m. Eastern time, New York time, because that is when the polls close in Israel at about 10 p.m. Israel time. And we'll be going through until 7 p.m. New York time. Probably at that point, we'll have as many of the results as we can realistically work with. Uh, we may go a little bit longer and start a little bit later. Uh, we'll have to see, but it's likely to be 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Monday, March 2nd on the Nachum Siegel Network. We will probably also simulcast it on Facebook Live and on YouTube and on Twitter. So uh, there'll be a lot of different ways to follow it, but if you're listening now on Nachum Siegel Network, you should absolutely be able to listen to it then. And uh, there'll be some video as well. So again, Monday, March 2nd, that is Israel election night. Please join us. There will be some uh, very exciting guests, some people who are really quite knowledgeable about the Israeli political situation and the Middle East situation and the global political situation. I will be hosting, Jake Novak, I'll be hosting, but uh, there will also be some important special guests, and we will make sure that you get um, the information that you need to get, because unless you are fluent in Hebrew, and I know many of you are, and congratulations to you if you are, uh, and you have your correct setup on your internet site so you can follow it on the Israeli television stations, uh, you won't be able to really get good coverage of the Israeli election night. And it certainly will not be available on American news media for many reasons. Uh, they don't ever really cover it anyway, at least not uh, during the election. Uh, and that being the night before the big Super Tuesday primaries, I think there's going to be even less coverage than usual of the Israel election. So that's uh, uh, absolute appointment radio, appointment internet, whatever you want to call it. Again, Monday, March 2nd, Israel election night, beginning at 3 p.m. Eastern time, New York time, going for several hours after that. Uh, I'll be hosting, I, I, Jake Novak will be hosting, and we'll have some very, very important and knowledgeable guests throughout the uh, late afternoon and evening. So please join us for that. Um, Today's topic, again, is focusing on what really is our big story now, and that is the, I think, somewhat inevitable rise of Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party. Uh, this is something that I actually wrote about twice in the last few days uh, in my CNBC column. And if you want to read all of my CNBC columns, and there are hundreds of them going all the way back to 2013, uh, you just have to type in Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, CNBC on your Google uh, search bar, and it'll come up, uh, the, the archive page, and you'll see everything I've written. I wrote two things this week that I think uh, really play into, into explaining what we're seeing now with Senator Sanders. The first thing I wrote is a little bit secondary, but I'm just going in chronological order right, here, right now. Um, I really believe that the entrance of Mike Bloomberg and all of his money into the race has effectively led to Sanders doing even better than he would have done without Bloomberg in the race. It sounds counterintuitive. You would think that Bloomberg getting in the race, someone who was very much against socialism, someone who apparently was very much inspired to get into the race because he was worried about a Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren 
uh, getting the nomination. You would think that he would be pushing back against them. But first and foremost, a man worth 65 or so billion dollars like Mike Bloomberg getting into the race and feeling like he can come in late and feeling that he's entitled to do so is kind of the embodiment of a lot of what Bernie Sanders says, right? I mean, he's a little bit less of a chicken little, Bernie Sanders is, if all he's doing is talking about how those bad billionaires come, are, are trying to run our government and get in tr- charge of our party and all that kind of thing, and then you have somebody like Mike Bloomberg, who's the living embodiment of what he's talking about. So that has helped. It's also helped that, that Mike Bloomberg has taken the air out of some of the other so-called centrists. I say so-called because the party has moved so far to the left. You, know, you hear this a lot from people on the left that, oh, the Republicans have moved so far to the right, somebody like Ronald Reagan would be a liberal now. People who say that are very ignorant. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. The Republican Party has moved to the left since Ronald Reagan. I think that's generally unfortunate. The Democratic Party has moved way to the left since Bill Clinton, let alone a time of John F. Kennedy uh, or, or even Harry Truman. They are so far to the left. So even a person like Joe Biden, who is a, only a, a relative so-called moderate, but he has been hurt by Mike Bloomberg, and it's taken a lot of air out of the, out of the moderate sails. Um, before Bloomberg had his first uh, uh, debate appearance, and by the way, it was terrible. Mike Bloomberg did a really, really bad job in that debate. He didn't seem prepared. I don't believe he wasn't prepared, and by that I mean literally. I think there were people who prepared him for that debate, but either because he's just so inexperienced and not skilled at debating, or because maybe he's a 78-year-old man who can't really, uh, you know, (laughs) old dog can't learn new tricks kind of thing. I don't know what it is, but he did poorly in that debate. And don't let anybody, anybody else tell you otherwise. Uh, if I had to say something good about Bloomberg's performance in that debate before the Nevada caucus, I would say that he did a pretty decent job of getting a couple of zingers in on Sanders at the end of the debate. But for most of the debate, Bloomberg didn't look ready. He looked old. He looked tired. He did not have a good answer about, his, about the many years' worth of sexual harassment and discrimination uh, against women charges against his company. Uh, and I can't believe he wasn't prepared with something better than that. Um, and also, by the way, it's hard. It's hard. I'm not the first one to say this. Uh, there have been some people who, who noticed, who noted this w- before I did, that even if he is prepared, even if a person is prepared, these, being able to respond well and to be able to push back effectively against those kinds of accusations, the things that a person has said in the past that are offensive or a record of sexual discrimination or harassment or ever, at a company, it's not easy to come up with a good one-liner there. But as other people have said before, I'm saying it now, uh, it should... The, the, the fact that Bloomberg had such a hard time doing that should give us a little bit more appreciation just from a strategy point of view for the way President Trump, then candidate Donald Trump, handled it in 2015 when Megyn Kelly asked him all the similar questions, uh, the similar type of litany of, of quotes, negative quotes about women that Elizabeth Warren leveled on Mike Bloomberg the other night. Megyn Kelly did very famously in 2015 to Donald Trump, and he got a laugh out of the audience because he sort of interrupted her, and he said, no, 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 I only said that about Rosie O'Donnell. And uh, I'm sorry, folks, that was funny. (laughs) I'm not saying it it excuses him. I'm not saying that changes anything from a factual standpoint, but it did disarm the question in a big way, and it's not easy to do that. You have to be good at it. I think that Trump's just had many years of being uh, a pugnacious, street-fighting guy, so he can handle these things better. 
Mike Bloomberg never really challenged when he ran for mayor. I mean, he had a somewhat tight race. I don't know if you can say that against Mark Green the first time he ran. But with Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, pretty much at the height of his popularity or close to the height of his popularity, backing Bloomberg so strongly back in the 2001 election in New York City, coming after 9-11, Bloomberg wasn't going to lose. And uh, that's why he won. And once you're an incumbent, you know, it's, it's hard to, to unseat an incumbent. So that is one thing that really helped the Bernie Sanders momentum because Bloomberg has helped him. Bloomberg has proven that there are billionaires who are trying to take over. You know, I, I, I've always felt that billionaires and bashing rich people is a waste of time because that's how a lot of wealth is spread around. You know, wealthy, the wealthiest people in America are not like, for those of you who are fans of the movie or the, the book The Hobbit, they're not like the, the dragon Smaug sitting on top of a mound of gold coins and not spending their money. These people spend their money. They create jobs. They, they do cascade the wealth on down. They don't, they don't just hoard it. It may seem like that because somebody like Bloomberg's gone from maybe being worth five to ten million dollars, ten billion dollars maybe 20, 25 years ago to now being worth 65. But he's probably spent a tremendous amount, you know, billions and billions of dollars at, during that period as well. So it, it's very misleading. It's a, it's, a, it's a basic misunderstanding of capitalism and very rich people and all that. But it doesn't mean billionaires are good people. I'm not saying they're better people than you or I. A lot of them have worked harder or have innovated better than you or I, and that's, that's fine to acknowledge. I'm not, but I'm not canonizing them. I'm not making them into saints or, 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 or tzaddikim, righteous people. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, uh, look, you know, <laughs> they, should, they should probably be admired for some of the good things that they've done or innovative things that they've done to get where they are. But that doesn't mean they're good people, and it doesn't mean they should be our political leaders. I'm not saying they shouldn't be. Just say it, it's, it's, you know, we got to judge them on their, uh, on their merits and how they do policy. And Bloomberg really looks like the stereotypical jerky billionaire trying to come in and, and take over the government or take over the presidency. And, and Sanders is, you know, he's making Sanders point for him. So that was one thing. And I just think the money that Bloomberg is shoving into this race has just made it that much more important in the minds of some of the other candidate supporters, particularly Bernie Sanders supporters, to give him more money. And he has been raising tons of money ever since Bloomberg got into the race because I think the argument that Sanders has been making is very effective to his followers, saying, hey, Bloomberg has unlimited money. That means you've got to give me more money. And that's what's happened. So I think that Bloomberg has unwittingly really, really helped Bernie Sanders. Of course, the other thing that happened is Bernie Sanders wins the the Nevada caucus by more than almost all the polls said. He really, really trounces the competition. And that was the, uh, the impetus for the second column I wrote about Bernie Sanders this week, where I really talked about how we shouldn't be surprised about Bernie Sanders winning, not so much because of the Bloomberg thing. Well, that, that was obviously what I wrote about earlier in the week, and that played a role. But because of the way we, and by I say we, I mean not necessarily deliberately, and I certainly don't mean all of us, but we have been raising our children in America for decades now to be very, very likely targets and very susceptible targets to the kind of stuff that Bernie Sanders is selling. And I'm going to talk about the stuff he's selling a little bit later. But first I want to talk about this, because there were things in my column that I couldn't put in just for for space you know they don't they don't like more than a thousand words in the column and i I respect that this is the internet era after all so i I, what i talked about was how first off the biggest reason 
that I think that we've raised our children to be susceptible to the kind of stuff that Bernie Sanders is selling is that for the last, really, ever since World War II, so we're talking about 70-plus years here in America, we've pretty much pounded home the idea that the really best way and sometimes really only way to success in America is to go to college. While at the same time, especially since the 1970s, we've made college unaffordable for so many people. So many colleges are unaffordable, especially for the, the kids themselves. I mean, the idea of a kid even paying their way through a state school right now is almost ludicrous almost ludicrous, let alone a private college. So these kids probably, I can understand younger people in America and maybe not so younger people, people in their 30s who still have a lot of student loan debt feeling kind of railroaded. So here comes the Bernie Sanders promising to forgive student debt. I mean, are we surprised that, that millions of young people are attracted to that message? We did this to them. We told them that college was the only real way to success. Then that allowed the colleges along with the federally guaranteed student loans it created huge demand, and it created an unlimited amount of money supply for them to raise tuition. So, of course, they raised tuition. What do you think? They're stupid? They had, they, 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 they had the government and politicians and, and all kinds of cultural icons telling them that college is the goose that lays the golden egg. you got to go to college. You have to go to college. College, 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 college. And then they raise up the price way, way more than the, than the, uh, than the rate of inflation over six decades. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we've had politicians from both parties who have really focused on really, really protecting older people. And older people in America, if you just look at the, at the data, are like, much more likely to be wealthy than younger people. Now, I know we all know about some elderly people who are poor and elderly people who are left out in the cold. I'm not talking about them. I'm just talking about the overall general numbers here. If you are a, a, an American person over the age of 65, you are more likely to be a wealthy person than any other demographic in the world of a large size. But we've had politician after politician talk about Medicare and protecting Social Security and all these kinds of things, while at the same time promoting stuff like Obamacare, which, as you may remember, would really relied on younger, healthier, and poorer Americans to buy health insurance, expensive health insurance at levels they didn't necessarily need to pay for everyone else getting covered. If you remember, that was something that I called a really stupid part of Obamacare. That was the, there were a lot of stupid things about Obamacare. That was the dumbest of them all. When you ask people who don't have as much money as others and don't have as much need for the product as others to pay more for that product that they don't need as much as everybody else, that was stupid. And to make that the linchpin the thing that the whole structure of Obamacare was going to stand on, the individual mandate, which literally means everyone's got to get health insurance. And if you're young and healthy, you're going to pay more than what you used to be able to get, even if you did want health insurance at that young age. Well, that was just stupid. And it's one of the reasons why there was very little pushback when the Trump administration, President Trump, got rid of the individual mandate. So that's another reason. You've, you've had major, major social policy social welfare policies in this country that did not favor young people. And I can go even further into that and talk about how the so-called pro-education Democrats and even pro-education Republicans don't do all that much for education. The, the Democrats who talk about education and, 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 and improving education and improving educational opportunities for everybody talk about that all day. But when it comes down to forcing the unionized teachers in this country to work to a higher standard and to do a better job of delivering the actual education, the Democrats are not interested. In the end, they choose the older people 
literally older than younger than children I'm talking about. I'm not talking about elderly people here, but they will they, they have chosen to support and protect unionized teachers who have jobs, who have money. I'm not saying they're rich, but they have something that kids don't have at, necessarily, especially in poor areas. They've chosen them over the kids every single time. And this was something that the late Steve Jobs noted to President Obama. There's, there's, uh, in Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, he talks about a phone call uh, and also a personal meeting that Steve Jobs had before he died with President Obama, where Steve Jobs says, I, I want to give all these technical advantages that I know Apple can provide to America's schools, but all you and your government do are protect these unionized teachers, and it's, I know it's going to go to waste. I know it's going to go into the toilet. And I don't know what Obama said back to him. I don't think that that was included in the book, but it was a true and an important point. And yet another reason why somebody like Bernie Sanders coming around and saying, we've got to give you free college. We've got to give you all kinds of other things for younger people. At least he's addressing them. And granted, he's an old man himself, 78 years old himself, just like Bloomberg. But at least he's talking to younger people in a way that I don't think other politicians have for, for either party really in a long time. Again, I think it's snake oil, and I'll talk about that later in the program here on the Nachum Siegel Network, but still important to, to hear that. Now, finally, there's a third reason that's relatively new that has really helped Bernie Sanders right now get where he is, and that is the Democrats and their friends in the news media have spent the last four years, really, but at least, at least the last three years, convincing young people in this country that, and, every, and everyone who, who, who will listen to them that the House is on fire, that President Trump is a white supremacist, that President Trump is a foreign agent, a, a puppet of, of Vladimir Putin, and they've been saying this for years now. Now, I think that most older Americans, even older Americans who hate President Trump, are old enough to understand that that's not quite true, even if they hate President Trump. I, absolutely, there's no truth to it at all, of course, but let's say you're an older Democrat who hates President Trump, and maybe you'll believe a little bit of it. Younger Democrats and younger folks, period, I, I, you know, they're, they're, they're more likely to believe this nonsense. Now, you're telling me that you've spent three years telling the younger people in America who are more susceptible to believe in this, that the House is on fire, that Trump's a foreign agent, that Trump's a white supremacist. How on earth can they vote for a moderate? Isn't, there, isn't this in a state of emergency? Haven't you told them that, that, that everything is in chaos and everything is terrible? How could they vote for someone who's promising to be moderate? Don't you need a revolutionary and someone very radical to take out something very serious like this? You're going to vote for Joe Biden when you think that there's a Russian agent in the White House? You're going to vote for, Joe, for, for Mike Bloomberg when you think that the, there's a white supremacist in the White House? Really? Of course, in, in desperate times, people are going to think that there's going to be, need to be desperate measures. Now, we're not in desperate times. The economy is really strong. We don't have a white supremacist in the White House. But the, the news media and the Democrats work very, very hard to try to convince people of that. You had Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC say that the appointment of Richard Grinnell, Ambassador Richard Grinnell, as the acting director of national intelligence was something that Putin ordered Trump to do. And he said this on his, on his program. No, no proof whatsoever. Just a, a radical, crazy, Alex Jones-level, Newtown parents were in on the shooting kind of nut jobs, you know, conspiracy theory. That was on MSNBC, Lawrence O'Donnell. I mean, the man ought to be taken off the air. He's off his rocker. But somebody watching probably believes him, and, those, and that somebody is probably younger people. And you have a news media that also deliberately twists everything President Trump does into some kind of racial attack. Last week, President Trump, yes, 
he pardoned Rob, Rod Blagojevich, the former governor of Illinois, who I'm no fan of, uh, but who I think actually had spent enough time in jail. I guess it was eight or nine years in jail for uh, an attempted crime, and, and, and I think he should have spent that time in jail. I, I have no mercy for the man, and I certainly would have put him, put him on my list, high list of, 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 for pardons, but he was pardoned, and I don't think it's a great out, out, outrage. But the news media decided to glom onto that and say, oh, President Trump is only uh, pardoning white guys. There is his white supremacy again deliberately ignoring the few people who were African-American who President Trump also pardoned, not only in this round of pardons, but in the past. Look, love or hate President Trump, but if you have to portray him as a member of the Klan to to show that you don't like him and you don't really think you have another argument, then please go away. Because we don't need racial hatred and racial, racial, racial fear in this country any more than we already have. But this is what the Democrats have sown, and they've reap, and they're reaping what they've sown. I mean, it's like the Democratic Party has been making these wild accusations along with their friends in the news media for years now, and they're suddenly surprised that the voters want a more radical candidate to take down this, emerge- this phony emergency that they've created in the minds of millions of Americans. It's not a surprise. Now, I couldn't add into the article also because of space a few of the other factors that are playing into the role, playing into Bernie Sanders' ascendancy, that we as parents, and again, I I know a lot of you are not guilty of this, but as parents, we are responsible for. First of all, how many parents in America today are taking their kids to a church or a synagogue or a house of worship compared to the generation before them? We know from all the studies, whether it's the Pew Report or anything else like that, that for Christians and Jews, the numbers are similar. There are fewer people going to uh, their houses of worship that are living with a religious upbringing. So somebody like Bernie Sanders, who is very anti-religious and lives a very secular life, who never would have gotten anywhere in American politics in the past when we felt religion was a little bit more important, can now move forward. And that has a lot to do with it. And I also think another reason, another way that we're raising our kids to be Bernie supporters is we've taken away the purpose-driven life for a lot of our children. We got rid of the draft, and, and many of you may remember a an edition of, 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 of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network months ago when I explained that I am in favor of the fact that we got rid of the draft 47 years ago in this country because it's made our military better. But I say that with full acknowledgement that there have been a lot of good things that we lost because we got rid of the draft. And one of them was a purpose-driven life option, only an option, for some for, for millions of Americans, especially American boys bo- born without fathers who needed to have that kind of male influence in their life that got it from the armed forces. Now, I believe that there should be other options besides the military, but I would be very much in favor of a required national service year or two for all of our American boys and girls when they finish high school. No exceptions. No college deferments. Nothing, except in the cases of mental or physical disability. I don't think there should be any other excuse. And I think there should be many choices. You can work in a school. You can work to clean up the national parks. You can choose the military. We can come up with some good ideas. Then again, There again, by the way, the unions got in the way. Just like the teachers' unions get in the way of decent education in this country, the unions got in the way of a very good idea that Bill Clinton had when he was elected president in 1992, which was the AmeriCorps uh, program, which is in existence but as anyone will tell you, AmeriCorps' options for what you can do are very limited, and it really becomes not much of a very purpose-driven choice because America's unions, from the teachers' union on down, blocked AmeriCorps from being able to do a lot of meaningful work, which is just too bad. We need a president, and we need a Congress to stand up to the unions and say, no, uh, America's young people need to be able to do the kind of work that may or may not threaten you as a union too bad. We have, we have a bigger fish to fry here. Um. Folks, I I talked about the threat of Bernie Sanders uh, weeks ago 
here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network and how, as a Jew, as someone born as a Jew, it's so dangerous the positions he takes because his Judaism, his ethnic Judaism, or whatever you want to call it, the fact that he was born from a Jewish mother, seems to give him an excuse for his radical anti-Israel positions, his anti-Semitic positions. I believe he is both of those things. And he uses the fact that he is a Jew as a way to shield himself from that. There is no doubt in my mind, there should be no doubt in anybody's mind, that this is the most anti-Israel, anti-Semitic presidential candidate, major presidential candidate we've ever had. And so it's very, very scary that he's getting as far as he's getting. But But right now I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other problems that we can take a look at from the Bernie Sanders story just very quickly from a point of view of just, again, our religious upbringing. Again, I am not a rabbi and I'm not playing one on TV. But from a political theory point of view and from a sociological point of view, I've always believed that the most important lesson that the Torah brings to us and then later on all of the work of our scholars after that is the idea of meritocracy. And you have to understand that meritocracy, the idea that you should get what you work for and what you are... What you, what you deserve, not based on just being born or entitled to, but because you've earned it. You must, we have to understand that for most of the world, that is still a radical idea. For a lot of Americans, that is still a radical idea. I think for Bernie Sanders supporters, that is a radical idea. You'll notice that the Torah talks about requirements only and not entitlements. When they talk about the rights of people, it's not, hey, you have a right to this. It's, you must grant this respect or courtesy to others, whatever you want to talk, or, or legal protection to others. There's a very big difference. When we talk about like that, that endless argument about whether healthcare is a right or a privilege, it's neither. It's an obligation for us as a, as a society to provide a system that gets healthcare to people as much as possible. It's not something we can go around and say, oh, I want this. In other words, there's a very important difference there because when you talk about it as an obligation, that means we have to work out a system that actually works. And we can't just say, well, we were trying to give everybody health care, but it didn't work out. Sorry, because we ran out of money or we had to ration it like they do in these socialized medicine countries. No, it's our obligation to figure out how to do this. And we know from capitalist theory and from from economic theory that if you want anything that's valuable, any commodity to be less expensive, you have to play with supply and demand. Now, because healthcare is something that really doesn't go down in demand, you, healthier people may not go to the doctor as much, but at the end of their life, at some point, we're all going to get sick. At some point, we're all going to die and need some kind of healthcare to help us avoid the worst kind of death or maybe delay it. I don't believe it's ethical for us to try to reduce demand by rationing, which is what most of the world does. They bring down the cost falsely of healthcare by fooling around with demand, by, by rationing it. Now, I'm in the camp that says we should lower the cost of healthcare by increasing the supply. That's the ethical way to handle this. We keep talking about health insurance and health coverage, and, and nobody talks about adding the number of doctors we would need to provide this, adding the number of hospitals and other kinds of care facilities, adding to the technology. We don't talk about that. We just talk about health insurance. As if giving someone a health insurance card is the same thing as healthcare. It's not the same thing. And Bernie Sanders and socialism are so dangerous. Forget his anti-Semitism. Forget his anti-Israel stuff. I, can't, I'm not, I don't really mean to forget it. Just If we put that aside for a second, he's also extremely dangerous because socialism is dangerous because socialism is against meritocracy. 
And that brings us back to Judaism because what we've learned from the Torah is meritocracy is, is the way things go. Why do you think every hero in, 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 in the book of Genesis, Bereshit, is the younger brother? Because in that society at that time, being the older brother meant you were entitled to something, whether you deserved it or not. You were just entitled because you were born first. Nonsense. The Torah tells us over and over again, no, it's about meritocracy. Abel was a better person than Cain. Jacob was better than Esau. The whole, you know, all right on down the line. That's why they deserved better treatment because they earned it, not because you're just entitled. There's a lot more to say about this. We'll talk about it more. Again, please join us on March 2nd for the election special. I'm Jake Novak for the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.